You know, the thing about live education is that you want people to share the experience, but the purpose of doing it is to give them the skills and ability and confidence to go out and do it on their own. Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Hannah Claude, a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. And I'm Jack Sandu, a research assistant with the Department of Interventional Radiology at the University of Miami and Jackson Memorial Hospital. So we work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the hosts of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're super excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR in which we interview the Dr. Barry Katzen about the birth of the field of interventional radiology and his role in creating innovative conferences like ISET. Dr. Katzen went to medical school at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine and did his radiology residency at the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center. He then went on to do his fellowship at St. Vincent Hospital in New York. Dr. Barry T. Katzen is the founder and medical director of Baptist Cardiac and Vascular Institute in Miami. He's considered one of the founders of interventional radiology as a medical specialty, and he's also one of the few non-surgeons awarded membership in the Society of Vascular Surgery in the United States. So, Jack and Hannah, as we did this interview just now, what did you guys think? Honestly, this was probably one of the most enjoyable episodes and interviews that I've ever been able to be a part of. And to be able to speak with someone who played such a large role in creating the specialty and in kind of building a model to what the integrated residency is kind of going for. And to be able to speak with him about the history about that. And to me, it was such a great experience and so valuable in kind of learning like how he went about creating what he did. Absolutely. Yeah, Hannah, what did you think? Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, we sat down with the guy who made this field clinical. Like he was talking about that was a novel idea. Like he was looked at, at like a crazy person for thinking that we should be following up with our patients after we do these procedures. So hearing that from like the mouth of the horse who came up with that idea was insane. Yeah. I think that's yeah. so cool. No, that absolutely. I think that obviously for us and for anybody to be able to sit down or even meet Dr. Katzen is incredible. But how personable he is and how you can just tell he's a person of character. Like what he believes in, he believes in so strongly that he's literally created a field of medicine out of his beliefs and the beliefs of those that he associated with early in his career. And I think his radical ideas are ones that have created a field. One of the parts that I liked the most was near the end when we were talking about when he first got to Miami and uh, one of the ways he made, you know, he, he created a clinical position, so to speak, was by getting rid of um, ordering procedures. Which yeah, today, yeah. now, that's like, oh, of course yeah. you wouldn't have that. Places that have that are archaic or whatever. But like, he was like the first person to do that. And it was a, it was a purposeful effort, you know, to Yeah, yeah definitely. And like hearing what one of his goals was, was to like get the administration to know who interventional radiology was yep. yeah. at the very beginning. And like seeing like how far it's come since that goal. Yeah. It's just, it's just amazing to kind of see how he kind of transformed the image mm-hmm. of interventional radiology. Absolutely. Yeah. What did you guys think about his comments on the birth of, or the, the the early history of interventional radiology before it started and all that? What, what did you guys think about that? I thought that was so fun to hear about that. I was learning so much about the field that I just didn't know before. 
And it's so cool because he was at the cusp of that. That was actually happening as he was going through his training. So as he's telling his history, he's also teaching us the history of IR because it was being formed as he was also going through training. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was interesting because, you know, Hannah, you're early on and been to a few of these conferences, but often the, a uh, slideshow that every medical student sees is the, is the history of IR. And it's just like one slide is daughter, one slide is, slide is Palmaz, one is Grunsig, one is Dr. Katzen and Dr. Venonati and, you know, all these other people. But to hear him sort of give his perspective of, you know, he was a radiology resident and he read about this paper that daughter did years before of doing the, you know, transluminal angioplasty. And he thought, oh, I wonder what happened with this. Which is different than, oh, on slide one, yeah. angioplasty happened on slide mm-hmm. two, this happened. Like, you can yeah. see that it wasn't just, like, an explosion of IR existing in the world. No. And definitely, like, how he told us, like, in Europe, they were doing a lot more than they were in the States. Yeah. And how he was able to go to the United Kingdom for about, I think he said, three months. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> instead of and AIRP. Instead of, yeah, instead of what <laughs> AIRP is now for residents. And, like, there he was able to see, like, a bunch of pulmonary interventions. Yeah. And then being able to come back to New York and he performed the first uh, lung biopsy in the state after just seeing it in, I know. in the UK and to me like it's amazing like how like how much it's grown since then mm-hmm. but like that basically just him like going out on his own and like kind of seeing everything yeah mm-hmm. you, you can really see the principles that guided his life early and how it's shaped what we are wanting to do now with our lives absolutely yeah. and i think that's so powerful like like you said before you can just feel like he lives out his principles that he stands by and i think that's so admirable because the principles that we have now we should be emulating those throughout the rest of our career you know what i mean like yes there's physician burnout and yes as we go on through our careers sometimes you know physicians can get cynical or they you know lose hope in like in medicine but like he never has you know, he's always seen like the, the light at the end of the tunnel and is like working towards that always. And I think that's so cool. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think too, beyond just interventional radiology, but also ISA specifically, the innovation that he had, and you know, he mentioned Grunsig had the idea first to do live education, but that he implemented first in Alexandria and then as I said, was fascinating. And one story, I, while, while here at ISET, um, I was speaking to Dr. Katzen last night, and he said, oh, here's this person over here that's been to ISET for the last 30 years, for every single one, uh, Dr. Godot, who is in, uh, or Godot, I don't know how to say his name, I apologize, um, in, in Michigan. And he, while, while there, he introduced me to him, and then he was talking, he said, I've been coming for the last 30 years to this conference. And that's something important, because I don't come to conferences just to come. I keep coming because I learn something new every year. Yeah. And it's yep. the only conference that I would go to every single year. I thought that was phenomenal. That, yeah. yeah, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were at the conference this morning and we saw some of these live cases. And it's so cool to see them happening. They're being actually streamed from out of the country even. And you're seeing the live case and you're learning as the case is happening. And then they've also got polls going on so that members of the audience can also vote in and see how they would treat. And then there's a discussion about the differences and how people would approach. And I think it's so powerful because you learn so much more than just a, a slideshow when someone's saying, this is what I would do and this is what I did next. Absolutely. Then you get this roundtable discussion between you know 500 IRs in the audience, which is unbelievable. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah. such a cool idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and like those live cases are so educational. And I think one of the very unique things here is you have different specialties kind of on the panel. Exactly. So you kind of get to see different points of view and like no one way might be like the one, like the 100% best way to do it. 
and you kind of get to see like why people would think to, to go with this catheter, this wire, that device, mm-hmm. or that treatment. It's very interesting to see that and learn from each other. Yeah, it gets you out of the echo chamber. There's a reason and a place for specialty-specific conferences, but this plays a totally different role, and I think he explains that well in the episode. Now, for our interview with Dr. Kasson. Dr. Kasson, thank you for coming on the podcast today with My us. pleasure. Yeah. I'm excited about what you all are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as a pioneer in the field of IR, a lot of your history has been pretty well documented in other interviews, but we and our listeners are interested in learning when in your career did you decide that radiology was the field that you wanted to pursue? And at what point did you expose to special procedures or what would be considered interventional radiology now? Okay, so when I was in medical school, like, like you folks are, I actually wanted to be an internist. And my older brother was a radiologist, and uh, he gave, gave me some advice. He said, look, whatever career you're thinking about, when you're medical school, go, go spend a week with someone who's actually practicing whatever specialty you're looking at. So I went and spent a week. I forget what I did in radiology, and I went to internal medicine, which is what I was interested in. And the internist I went with was so miserable, and he kind of talked me out of going into medicine. Uh, and so I became interested in, in going into radiology. My brother was in that field at UM at the time. We had a very strong radiology uh, department, in fact, um, not so much oriented towards procedures at that point, but just the diagnostic aspect of it. But um, when I ultimately did decide to go into radiology, I felt I was giving up something. And there was this sort of thing deep back in my brain or my heart, whatever, uh, regarding patient contact and um, taking direct care of patients. But I chose to go the radiology path and wanted to grow up and be a diagnostic radiologist and live happily ever after. Yeah. And that was pretty yeah. much it in terms of ambition. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so when did it change where, you know, you, you knew you wanted to be a radiologist. Was there a certain procedure you saw, a certain thing you heard about that you're like, I want to do that, I want to do these procedures? So when I started, you have to put yourself in a different period of time. There's no CT scanning. There's no ultrasound. It's pretty much x-ray. Yeah. And the sophisticated imaging that got you the more complicated diagnostic information came from angiography. Mm-hmm. And angiography was all about the angioarchitecture of pathology. That's what it was. So it was catheter-based, but it was all about you know, diagnosis. Um, I started my residency at New York Hospital and began to read literature of things that were going on in Europe mm-hmm. uh, that really related to diagnostic things. And to show you how basic it was, um, I think the thing that caught my interest at first was reading about lung biopsies, right? Really exciting, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. But in the United States, if you can believe it, at that point in time, lung biopsies were not being done. They had been done. There were people who were advocating them. But the status quo, the, the chest surgeons, took the position that you're going to track cancer along a needle track. It was oh, called needle yeah. tracking. See, and all we're going to do is spread cancer around. Uh-huh. All right? And here I'm reading articles in Scandinavia and the UK of hundreds and thousands of biopsies being yeah. done percutaneously. And in our country, there were no mini thoracotomies. This was you know, a big deal to get a diagnosis. Oh, yeah. So. Um, I uh, talked my residency director into letting me go to the UK instead of going to the AFIP. Oh, interesting. (laughs) And so, so, um, you know, I went, I I spent three months at what was a chest hospital. And it was a very famous chest hospital. Now it's a cardiovascular hospital called the Brompton 
the Royal Brompton uh, Hospital in London. And there I was all of a sudden, we were doing image-guided lung biopsies, transtracheal brush biopsies and bronchography, and any way we could get into the body, you know, using imaging. And I got to see what was going on in the European mindset, which is quite different than up in New York. I was at Cornell than the traditional kind of status quo. Mm-hmm. So I actually, as a resident, came back and did the first lung biopsy in New York Hospital. <laughs> and it was wow. an amazing thing at the time. It was like doing the first heart transplant. Mm-hmm. People were in the room. It was like, you know, when I think about it in hindsight, it was, it was really something. So yeah. um, uh, because I came back with the skill, of course, and then the spirit. So when you say, well, when did you start thinking about procedures? I think if I had to look at a pivotal time, it was the enlightenment as, you know, how can we use imaging to do things less invasively? We didn't have these terms. We didn't have anything. But that's kind of what got me started. Uh, about the same time, you know, again, reading, I started reading it because I was doing vascular work, working in the animal lab at New York Hospital. We used to take the animals into the patient care areas at night, by the way. Uh, <laughs> that's where we did it. Wow. <laughs> so, in any event, we were working on um, imaging primarily, not therapeutics. And uh, Dodder's paper, you know, uh, mm-hmm. landmark paper, 64, was published and out and about. And I'm reading this. I'm saying, wow, that's pretty cool. I wonder what ever happened to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was kind of about it. And it just tucked away that, you know, this idea of using the catheter as a surgical instrument, which is the term he used, or the catheter as a treatment tool, rather than just a diagnostic tool, really started to intrigue me. About the same time, this is early 70s, People like Stan Baum, you know, up in uh, Boston, and others, Joseph Rush, when he, when he moved from the uh, behind the Iron Curtain at that time, were looking at embolization and tra- mm. treating GI bleeding uh, and things like that. So, um, so that's how my interest developed. And so when I left residency at New York Hospital, at least, angiography, so to speak, or cardiovascular radiology, it was called, was still primarily a diagnostic tool. Interesting. So I want to get into your experience in Rome, but before we go to that, I wanted to ask a little more about your clinical mindset. I was reading that while you were in a radiology residency, you would moonlight doing house calls. Yeah. Uh, general yeah. practitioner house calls. Yeah. Yeah. Was that was that a way for you to stay in touch with your clinical mindset? What well, why did you decide I, to do that? Actually, the reason I'd like I'd like to say that that was the case. <laughs> that would sound really good, and I think that had a part to do with it. But the real problem was um, in those days, uh, radiology residents. I don't know how it is today. Would moonlight covering in hospitals in New York City. Mm-hmm. All right. And the residents at Cornell would moonlight, and they had this little sort of underground mafia of, of distribution of residents throughout <laughs> New York City. Now, th- there was a rule against moonlighting in New York Hospital, and some very not-so-bright residents said, well, it's not really legal. We should just go to the CEO and say, why do we have this everybody's moonlighting? You know, we should just not make it illegal, and mm-hmm. we should just be able to do it. Well, of course, yeah, as you might expect, the guy says, you're moonlighting? Oh, you know, no. and, and, so, <laughs> and I was just a first-year resident at the yeah. time, but I needed the money. You know, New York is expensive. Absolutely. I needed something. Yeah. And there was no way, and they basically put out a dictum pretty publicly, anybody caught moonlighting was going to lose their residency Whoa. position. So it was pretty nasty. And about the same time, I saw something, it was called Doctors on Call, actually, and it was sort of a network of people that did house calls. And I said, this is, this is good, I can do this. I'm a physician and whatever, and that's what I did. And, and it was a way to make the extra money I needed to. So I would run around Queens doing house calls, and there was no beepers, no cell phones, no whatever at that time. So what I would do is I would wait someplace, and 
generally what I would do is I'd leave the house around seven. I'd go to some diner in Queens, mm-hmm. all right, and maybe hang out and give somebody a number. They would call me, let's say, and give me an address and a family and what's the problem with the patient. All right? <laughs> and then I'd head out to the patient's house. And I had a, a doctor's bag and, yeah. you know, all the paraphernalia you need to make house calls. And then from the house, I would call the service and they would give me the next place. And this place, it was busy. I mean, I'd go yeah. all night till like three in the morning, then wow. come back. You know, it was like 20 bucks a house call or something. And it was a lot of money then. And my wife would empty my pockets when I got back to the, and I fell asleep. And, you know. But it, it, it was very helpful. And you know, I've always been comfortable taking care of patients. And most things in the middle of the night are kids, you know, kids who are sick with fevers and things like that. So, so I, I guess in a way, I always felt comfortable. And then what happened regarding clinical medicine and what became IR, mm-hmm. just to give you that connection, as we made this transition to being interested in exploring how we could treat patients less invasively, it became apparent to me that we were the only people that were doing things to patients and not taking care of them. When you looked around the landscape of medicine, the gastroenterologists, the people that were doing procedures on patients were taking care of the patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I couldn't understand why we weren't taking care of the patients. It was yeah. just sort of because we were evolving from radiology. And so when I first started my first position, which was after I left New York Hospital, is when I first began doing procedures and someone, I talked to somebody and I'd tell the doctor, look, just give me the patient's number or have the patient call me. I'll set everything up. Just, and then, of course, we had to figure out how to set it up. But the first thing, you know, just starting to make it easy. And so I had a pretty large referral practice, actually, uh, when I was in lower Manhattan from New Jersey and south part of Manhattan for various procedures that were going on. Yes, it's been with me from the beginning. So, like, in terms of, like, creating that clinical vision or mindset, did you have any interventionalists during your training or any colleagues that helped inspire you to create this vision or worked with you making interventional radiology more of a clinical practice? I think the people who were most supported were the other clinicians, the mm-hmm. vascular surgeons, the cardiologists I worked okay. with. To them, it was just a natural thing at the yeah. time. There was no turf issues. There was nothing... You know, of course it makes sense. They, they weren't yeah. questioning my credentials. They weren't questioning anything. And uh, there were no real turf battles. And, yeah, I mean, ultimately, and so it just became part of human nature uh, in the way I practiced, like everybody else. Mm. And um, ultimately became an important pillar of what I believed was fundamental to the success of our new field, interventional radiology. But this was going on long before we even had a field. I know you have known throughout your life a lot of the other pioneers of the field. and. For example, when you're in fellowship, when you went to Rome and worked with Rossi. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, plenty of Rossi. Uh, yeah. yeah. Was he someone that was working in a clinical fashion there in Rome? No. He was operating a traditional radiologist. Yes. And what happened there was I came for a three-month fellowship uh, required by St. Vincent's, actually. They, they really? sent me there. And I can talk to you more about the why, but I didn't particularly want to go there. <laughs> I wanted to go to Scandinavia, which is where everything I thought was going on. Yeah. Uh, but he had been at St. Vincent's for 14 or 15 years, had, a, had the largest angiography program in the United States at the time. And they had gone through a two-year recruiting process of trying to find another Plenty Rossi, and then they decided to go young. All right? <laughs> so I got a very early opportunity in my, in my life. So, uh, yeah, and um, no, no, they were doing traditional, they do the procedures, that was it. But what happened there was that I was working in a public hospital, and it was an old-world European type of thing. They would actually be working on patients without talking to them. Really? Yeah. And they didn't have anesthesiology. You know, they were just, or if they said something, it wasn't really communicating with the patients. And so 
I very quickly tried to learn Italian because there was no way I was going to do a procedure on anybody without interacting with them in yeah. some, some yeah. way at that time. So, uh, so I learned Italian. Uh, that, that got me through those three months. And no, they hadn't done angioplasty. They hadn't really. They, what they had been doing, they had been aggressive in the non-vascular side, mm -hmm. uh, biliary drainages, things oh, like that, and, and angio for diagnosis. Uh, but it was before Grunzig balloons. This was before any of that. Yeah, mentioning Grunzig is interesting because that was the next person I was going to ask you mm -hmm. about. I know you interacted with him early on as well, and he was someone, if I remember correctly, that was an internist before yes. going into procedures. He, he, uh, so there's a European model called angiology. Mm -hmm. There are several of them at the meeting uh, at ISIT this year. And these are internists who are interested in vascular medicine, mm -hmm. many of whom do procedures. All right? That became a Cleveland Clinic model for vascular medicine. Mm -hmm. There are other models in the United States for vascular medicine, most of which are non-invasive, mm -hmm. uh, like Dr. Olin, like yeah. Dr. Jaff, so on. Yeah, so I met Andreas because we were both young and going to similar meetings while I was in Europe. Mm -hmm. And he, at the time, was very highly focused on trying to treat um, heart attacks and, and cardiac disease. So he was an internist who was an angiologist who became a cardiologist so he could work in the heart. Wow. Yeah. And I feel very fortunate that I not only got to meet him, but actually have a very good relationship with him. And then when he moved to the United States, we stayed in touch, and he participated in some of my meetings. And we actually spent a week together sailing in the uh, in the Caribbean at wow, some point. that's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, he... he um, but he had that the, the spirit of innovation and change. He, yeah. It was all about change. Mm -hmm. And the very first angioplasty I did was in 1974. Mm -hmm. And that was myself and Dr. Rossi and... Uh, a, another guy who was like a fellowship position like me, but over there, called Giovanni Simonetti. That's amazing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we didn't have balloons, of course. We did an iliac stenosis with a device that was made in East Germany at the time, really? behind the Iron Curtain. You know, there was no FDA. There was no, you know, yeah. there was pretty free flow of uh, mm -hmm. product. Cool. And we did that together. So I think we shared in that part the, uh, the spirit of innovation was there. Um, and the lack of a regulatory environment, which we have to live in today, was there, which was another important factor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are, those are lifetime relationships. I was very fortunate. So let's skip forward to when you were in Alexandria. Mm -hmm. At that time, I've read and, and heard that before I said existed, there was something called the Alexandria Tutorials. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Was, that, was that sort of the birth of the live education? And, yeah. and what, what, what motivated you or inspired you to do that? So... Um, what happened was, as we really caught fire, basically, so between probably the early 70s and, you know, 74, or something like that, people were stopping bleeding with drugs. They were putting catheters in for bleeding. They were blocking arteries. Some of them were beginning to kill tumors with blockages, uh, uh, treating portal hypertension, not with TIFs, other procedures, but we were yeah. treating portal hypertension with embolization of the varices, transhepatic, uh -huh. hepatically. Uh, before there was advanced endoscopy and things like that. So it was, it was, it was anywhere you could think of as which problem can we attack. Mm -hmm. So when I, and the early papers I published when I was at that level, like out of uh, residency, were mostly about embolization. And because that's where we could have immediate benefit and so on. Uh, the later uh, publications on angioplasty really dated more from this Alexandria period. Yeah. So regarding the tutorial specifically, 
Once I come back from Europe, done angioplasty, we started and saw Grunzik's balloons. Grunzik's balloons really became available. Like it. They weren't available, but he was making them in 74, 75, wow. yeah. so I could get my hands on them. <laughs> and because I'd met him and knew him, he would send it to me. And he was very picky. He limited the growth of angioplasty, balloon angioplasty, because he would only, he would decide who got the balloons. Yeah, and, you know, who was competent enough. Who was gonna, not only competent, but yet yeah, competent, but was going to protect the procedure. He was very afraid of it getting into the wrong hands without getting enough data to prove mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. efficacious. Yeah. So uh, every time in my career, everywhere in my career, I've had great collegial relationships with vascular surgery and with cardiology. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's uh, people that want you to succeed and have the best thing for the patient. And I met a young vascular surgeon in Alexandria who was very, very supportive and ultimately gave us our first case to happen to be a hospital employee. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, if you can spare an aortoiliac operation on this woman, I'd be very happy and she'd be very happy. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And it was kind of like that. That was the yeah. only thing that mattered. And so we began to develop that experience. And once I really knew angioplasty was a winner, mm -hmm. that this was a, a life-changing type of thing, what got me started in video education was that we didn't have time to train. The way procedures developed in that or evolved was that if the procedure was proven successful, then it had to be worked into the residency programs yeah. in some way. And there mm -hmm. had to be this pipeline of education. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, wait, wait, we don't have time for that. We've got to get the people who have catheter skills now the ability to do this. And I said, the best way to do that is, and people were coming to the lab to visit already. They were already coming to see procedures and try and learn it. And there was this hunger to learn it. I was dying to teach it. And so uh, we started what were called tutorials. Uh, I forget what it was called. I think it was angioplasty, tutorials in transluminal angioplasty, I think it was called. And we took 23 people a month, which was the most I could fit into the area around. Put some home, at the same time, home video cameras were developing. Yeah, so technology yeah. was getting to the point where I wouldn't have to go to a TV studio to, to hire a big expensive yeah, stuff, wow. kind of like what's going on here. And so technology was enabling things like that. And I put a camera in, bring one or two people into the room, but set everything up so people could watch. And then once a month was starting to kill everybody, the staff. We'd go up to the boardroom for lectures. Mm -hmm. The people who were parts of those early tutorials were uh, people who you might not know today, but one of them was Bill Casarella, who was a longtime chairman at Emory, ultimately. But uh, he was at Columbia at the time. Uh, Ernie Ring, who was a long-term colleague of mine and was at Penn originally, started angioplasty at Penn and published a lot, and then moved to UCSF. Uh, Tom Soss from New York Hospital and mm -hmm. Tunk Tegmeyer, who we recognize today. Yeah. Um, and like five or six of us would give all the talks for three days and just do cases and you know go back and forth to the boardroom in the hospital. And then ultimately that expanded to uh, we take we use the auditorium, we figured out how to run the technology over. And we did them like three times a year, two or three times a year, where we could get 100 people. Wow. That was it. So you'd have the, the cabling set up, so you're in the suite and yeah. know, doing exactly what we saw today. Right, right. Yeah. And, but it communicating. With, the way it started was, look, I want to get as many people into the Ancho suite to see what we're doing. Uh, so, I, but, but so we can communicate back and forth, and mm -hmm. they can ask questions. And as you know, around an Ancho table, three or four people can see what's yeah. going on, and that's kind yeah. of it. So we use video cameras not just to communicate sound, but to try and give them views and show things. And in those days, angi percutaneous angioplasty had a conversion to surgery rate of like 5%. Really? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and it came from arterial ruptures. Mm -hmm. Or the, the worst thing that happened was you get this great successful result. And then we'd have balloon ruptures. Mm. But they don't rupture the way today's balloons rupture. They ruptured horizontally. 
Today's oh. balloons are using modern polymer chemistry. You can actually control the way a rupture occurs, you know, in a split <laughs> instead of a basically like it split in half. Yeah. yeah. And so as you went to pull it back, the broken half on the leading edge of the catheter would oh, mushroom and you couldn't get it out. You yeah. had to operate. Uh, so between that and surgery, there was a significant risk. So we had surgical standby or close surgical, you know, collaboration. People who have been uh, at those tutorials who are still around, it's interesting to hear their recollections of stories <laughs> yeah. sometimes when I run into them. Because, you know, the thing about live education is that you want people to share the experience, but the purpose of doing it is to give them the skills and ability and confidence to go out and do it on their own without yeah. a coach. Yeah. Absolutely. All right? It's not like mentoring in a fellowship environment. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, we were very successful, and, and whenever we had complications, you know, we, we always stuck with it. We, you know, we always, we always believed that learning how to bail out of problems and learning what the real world is, that, that's what we want to do. Nothing, we don't sugarcoat anything. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when you first came to Miami, and um, when did this idea of ISET start to form? And like, at what point like, did you approach your other colleagues from different specialties to kind of make this more of a multidisciplinary type of conference? So um, I moved to Miami uh, in 1987, but I decided to leave for the opportunity over a year in advance. So it created a number of issues with my partners, where I was, my colleagues, the, the fellow that I had accepted, a lot of issues related to that. But I moved with the idea of developing something. So the first year was all about building a practice and, and about me, I couldn't take my fellow with me. My associates from Alexandria didn't move initially, and the year after didn't work out for them to move. So, but my first year, I had to worry about changing the idea of what I was. I didn't okay. have a name yet. Interventional radiology. We were starting to use that name. We were starting to use that name. Yeah. But I knew that education was part of my culture. So the very first meeting, which now we include as part of ISIT culture, uh, because it really was the beginnings of that particular meeting, I was only one person, you know? Wow. I didn't have a, uh, you know, I had a new fellow <laughs> who started, and I invited people, the, the key players from Europe. We had about 20-something faculty now. I knew, I knew how to, that we wanted to make it a little bigger. We ran it at a hotel nearby. We had a number of uh, European faculty uh, who came, who were, who were, and everybody who was nationally known in angioplasty came. Because they thought, among other things, I'd lost my mind in moving to Miami. Because <laughs> I had this great, successful program who everybody in the country coveted. And here I was walking away from it. So, but we did live cases. We set everything up to run to the hotel now, which was off-site. That was the first mm -hmm. really live case off-site, okay, wow. for us at least. And, uh, but the technology had moved along. But when it came like to the faculty dinner... I called my wife and I said, look, you know, there's no way I can get out to take these guys out to a faculty dinner. I need you to take them over to this barbecue house, this <laughs> hotel, with, with wooden bench seats and all this sort of stuff. And there was a head of the department in Germany and Austria. We had somebody from the UK, people from New England. And, you know, she took them out for this very, very casual restaurant, which they all remember to this day. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was good. And, and at yeah. that time, certainly live cases in Europe, well, Grunzig was the one who really pioneered live cases initially, mm, okay. okay, to be perfectly fair. I, I was recognized by TCT as the pioneer in the United States because um, we, we did do the first live case education, and it was very nice of them to recognize me. So that's kind of how it got started. And then from there on, it was just reflecting my own philosophy. And what we wanted to do was build a meeting that was based around disease management, not around specialty, mm, right? Okay. 
it's, it's about treating vascular disease. And regardless, as more specialties got involved, we tried to you know, promote those specialties to get involved in a collaborative way. And then we went through the years of the turf wars and all that sort of stuff, which got pretty nasty. But I always had a great relationship with everybody. Was the buy-in from other specialties, you know, as the vascular surgeons, the interventional cardiologists, did that come with time? And has it been steadily growing? Or is, or is that something that pretty early on you had pioneers in those fields? To um, no. Um, actually, the advantage of not being in a university became pretty apparent mm -hmm. because everybody was focused on patient care and their own well-being. Yeah, right? yeah. It wasn't about silos and academic departments. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, the first thing that happened is that, you know, when I came to Miami, the most common vascular procedure was an amputation because amputations are listed in the vascular codes mm -hmm. were at the time, uh, not necessarily all for vascular disease. So there wasn't a lot of bypass surgery. There wasn't a lot of anything. Vascular surgery itself was really still part of general surgery. And because people weren't threatened, and having someone like me who can admit patients, who can bring patients in the system, was a benefit to everybody because, you know, to, to the rest of the guys, I, I was just bringing in more work. Everybody was going to benefit. And that's actually the rising tide philosophy was a lot of what, why people bought in. We had a chief of interventional cardiology. Coronary angioplasty was just starting. When I moved to Miami, I was cardiac trained because in those days, I trained in New York Hospital. We did all the cardiac casts because the cardiologist didn't want to do it. It was only diagnostic stuff and took him out of the office, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, I think, how I could kind of connect and relate to cardiologists a little bit. Uh, and then the one thing I did that connects with cardiology when I was in uh, Virginia, because I quickly realized that without cardiology, we're going to have a limited vascular program. Mm -hmm. the, the two are kind of connected, really, in one way or not, whether you wanted to or not. I actually started the cath lab at this hospital because there was no oh, cath lab. So I was the first director of the cath lab, but I had no interest in doing coronary angioplasty. But I knew we needed it to, to attract people. So when it came to Miami, it was all about, listen, if we work together, we can create something that's going to be better for everybody. Yeah. That's, that's where I live it. That's where I act it. And um, as I've gotten more complicated organizationally, you know, I, I've learned pretty early that when you're trying to get people to work together, create teams, you have to create win-win uh, solutions. Yeah. It's the only way to success. So anyway, that's that. Those were sort of the early origins. It was a smaller meeting, but all the big guys came, you know. And then gradually, we kind of grew in size. We had to move to a larger hotel. We um, Michael uh, Dake uh, joined us. Uh, then uh, Gary Becker and Jim Beninati, and things were very rapidly growing. This was like over three or four years, mm -hmm. and you know, um, the meeting you know grew proportionally also. And the reason it's not called, and and, and you know, vascular. I was a general interventional radiologist. You know, we all—that's all there was. You know, so in terms of doing biliary, GU, embolization, LPs, whatever it was, we loved everything we did, and it was very diverse. But then, and the reason I became so passionate about uh, clinical care was that it became clear in the early '80s and mid '80s that the vascular surgeons um, were going to be very interested in this. Rightly so, because they take care of vascular disease. Cardiologists mm -hmm. was less so at the time, and that we were going to have a competitive problem because radiologists is not, or we're not positioned to compete. Yeah, yeah. All right. Forgetting radiology mentality is we got to own everything. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. It has to be exclusive department. You know that was it was the exclusive contract. That was the mm -hmm. model. Yeah. And I said, look, this is not going to work because you have to earn 
your physician in the field. We have to be able to compete for patients. And as I go back to the original comment, nobody in medicine does procedures on people without taking care of them. Yes, it's not going to fly. Yeah. You know, that's, that's why this has always been an integrated part, not only of my own process, but I've written and, and told and preached uh, my whole career about cl how clinical practice is, is it's extra work for many, depending on where they came from, but it, it's actually a pillar of success. So, Dr. Katzen, uh, now going more into uh, what clinical IR practices are today, when you look at a bunch of uh, the successful clinical IR practices, you can trace their genealogy like to kind of some portion or uh, some degree kind of being built or modeled after the practice that you built at MCVI. Um, I wanted to ask you why you think your clinical vision and your career has become the model or gold standard of what clinical IR should be. I think we wanted to be a model. So radiologists who came from a different walk could say, hey, look, those guys are doing this. Let's figure out if, if they can do it, I can do it. I mean, that, that was the model going back to the early yeah. tutorials. And we wanted to do the same thing with clinical practice. And I think even today, uh, if you talk to our fellows today about how they interact with other clinicians, and you use and notice I use the term other clinicians is with one of respect um, and how they respect us at a clinical service and that took a long time. I forgot to mention uh, when I first moved to Miami, um, I was telling everybody how I'm in a clinical I'm going to take care of patients. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you, you say so. You know. And uh, they got a little nervous. They had a, a medical executive committee on a Saturday because I wanted admitting privileges. All right, and how's that going to work, and how are you going to involve vascular surgery, all that sort of stuff. So what We're happened after you got those admitting privileges, or as you were trying to get those admitting privileges? Well, no, no, well, I got the admitting privileges, and we had, and, and I began admitting patients, yeah. and they started seeing referrals quite readily, because this was involving a team, you yeah. know, it was involving a team. So uh, that credibility uh, became uh, very much appreciated, and now in our own hospital, uh, I had a couple of milestones. One is... Um, that I thought we'd define success, when the CEO could say interventional radiologist. That was a big deal, all right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, yeah. you know, because then you've reached the important level in the hospital that the administration knows what interventional radiologist. That was a big yeah. milestone. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it was Definitely. a targeted milestone. Yeah. It was a, an actual target. Um, and, and the other is getting the respect of of the rest of the medical staff. So one of the first things I did is um, I eliminated the ability to order a procedure. And you could no longer order a pulmonary arteriogram. You could no longer order a cerebral arteriogram. You could no longer order a biopsy. Mm -hmm. You had to put it in a consult for interventional radiology. Yeah. That was it. And how did you make that decision? Well, it, because it, it, it was, I had to figure out a way, you know, my, my whole mantra, my whole thing I was trying to project was that I'm a consultant just like everybody else on the staff, yeah. all right? And you can't order an appendectomy, <laughs> and you can't order a cardiac cath, and you're not gonna be able to order a pulmonary angiogram. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna come up and see the patient. I'm gonna make the clinical decision, but if I'm taking care of a patient, it's my responsibility to make that decision, yeah. not yours. You know, so that was a fundamental, it was such a major culture shift. Mm -hmm. You know, you're gonna do what? You know, and, and but once you start delivering on the service and on the clinical side of things, then you change your position in the medical staff hierarchy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a radical idea at the time, but it's, it's so... Yeah, and that still exists yeah. today. Yeah, that's true. It's, you know, yeah, uh, true. and we've recommended it. And, um, you know, it's a consult IR. It makes it lot, much more work. The fellows have to work their butts off. 
Uh, but it's all that way everywhere we practice IR and even the hospitals without training programs. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time yeah. to have one last question okay. for you before we go. So you've had this long and storied career, and a lot of our listeners are at the beginning of their careers or haven't even started training mm-hmm. yet. So how does IR need to adapt and change in the next 30 years, and what can our generation of future IRs do <clears throat> to, to, to cause that change? Well, I think that um, IR is going to continue to be the discipline that is the tip of the spear in change, changing healthcare. I mean, it's the nature. What's different is there are other people who do the procedures we do, but not other people as a discipline who bring the character and, and the drive that we do to changing the status quo. All right? So the difference uh, between us and the other disciplines that do procedures is that interest in improving the status quo, changing new procedures, where can we improve the care of patients. So I think we need to uh, be adaptable to change, to be instruments of change, uh, be clinicians who who think that way. We have vascular surgeons that have had IR fellowships and vascular surgeons who have learned endo skills in a surgical program, and they think very differently. Mm -hmm. We're all treating the same patients. This is all in our group, you know? Um, And it's that way of problem solving that's part of our, our fundamental character. I think it's a very exciting discipline that's going to continue to be uh, an extremely important discipline. You cannot run a hospital today without IR, and even though a lot of that stuff may be scout work, um, if you do the other things to differentiate as your clinician, we're seeing people build vascular practices. We, we need to be giving our fellows and residents the skills to build a practice. When you get a GI pr- uh, residency, they're teaching you how to start a practice. Yeah. You know, yeah, They're yeah, teaching you how to compete. There's no expectation it's going to be handed in your lap. Exactly. You know? And I think the fact that um, there are more, that first of all, in the IR residency, clinical practice is being required and we're structuring that. The fact that we have, we just had our 30th reunion of our mm-hmm. own fellowship and 80% of our, our former fellows that came were practicing clinical practice in, in a medical way. Mm-hmm. And so they represent more evangelical guys out yeah. there, uh, yeah. women and a lot of women. Uh, doing this as well. So yeah. it's an exciting time. I think it's going to very exciting field, and uh, uh, but we have to create our own opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast, and we'd love yeah. to have you yeah. on any other time. Okay, sure, I'm happy. Sorry, yeah, it was thanks uh, so much. Long, yeah. Okay, we appreciate yeah. it. what you guys no, are doing is great. Yeah, and uh, thank you. to any of any folks that are listening and uh, uh, to this, um, um, I've been blessed with a very you know a wonderful career, and the people I've met and trained over the year to seeing. Uh, the success of our field uh, and the transition of our field is, is you know, uh, one of the most gratifying things I've experienced. Amazing. What you guys so are doing is terrific. Thank you. Thank right? you so much. Right. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season, where we'll be discussing fibroids, interventional oncology, the interventional radiology interview trail, and more. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. If you're a practicing IR who'd like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time.